Well, hello, oddballs. It's your host, Bobby. And your co-host, Lexi. And this is Oddities Oddities on on Elm Street. Welcome back for episode 25. 25. You'll hear this. Week 18. Woohoo! If you didn't listen to last week's episode, go check it out. And also on Friday, we did a bonus episode. So go check it out. <laughs> Today's topic's probably going to have to be a two-parter. So I'm sorry. So if you get to the end, you can't stand the suspense any longer, then go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash oddities on Elm Street. Where's that? Patreon.com slash oddities on Elm Street. Okay, thanks. Otherwise, just click the link in the description and sign up and you'll get early access for part yeah. two. You don't have to wait as long as everyone else because you're, you're special. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And also, last week, we announced that we're going to be doing a giveaway. Now is the time to enter. The rules will be posted on my Instagram page. And what is that? Bobby Curtis Lee. Nice. Or you can just click the link in the description. Um, And, you know, one of the rules is going to be to follow my Instagram anyways. So while you're there, you might as well. Hmm. You know, there's a little. If I had one, I would do it. But for our giveaway, we have partnered with the Mysterious Package Company. So a big thank you to them. Thank you. Otherwise, it, it wouldn't be possible. They have sent us a copy of their new game called Postmortem, The Ghost in the Machine. Mm. You can't get this yet. Like, it's not out there anywhere. Except this is a, here. is a very us. special gift. Mm. So, you'll be one of the first Pretty few cool. to have this experience. And we're going to do it ourselves because we also got a copy. Oh, yeah. Nice. Very excited. Yeah, it's basically a murder mystery. You get, like, all the material to solve this case and, like, newspapers and evidence and stuff. It's really cool. I'm very excited. So, yeah, make sure to go check that out on Instagram. Enter to win. Um, I don't know when that giveaway should end. Probably, like, a week? So, like, next week we can come back and announce the winner? Yeah. All right. Um, Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, and we're doing this giveaway as a thank you to all of you guys for 30,000 streams and 10,000 Instagram followers. So, thank you for being here. Thanks for following Bob. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, with all that being said, let's do our morbid tidbit for the week. Hit me. All right. So... Do you remember when those miners got trapped in the mine in Chile? Okay, I definitely thought you were going somewhere else. <laughs> Where do you think like I was a going? a miner under 18. Oh. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, can, I can see the confusion. But no, it, I mean, it happened back in 2010, so it was, it was a while ago. That. All right, well... There were a bunch of Chilean miners that got trapped underground because the mine collapsed. And they survived 69 days in that mine. Oh my god. And up until now, 
They've held the world record for being the longest humans to ever survive underground. Because a Spanish woman named Beatrice Flamini took part of some research to measure the effects of long-term solitude on the human body, and she just completed this experiment where she spent 500 days in a cave. Like, she had absolutely no interaction with the outside world. She was 230 feet underground. Un- underground? Yeah. Like, how did she survive? Did she bring 500 days worth of food and water? She had a team of people that would bring her food, water, and take out her waste for her. But she instructed them to not speak to her, even if it, if there was, like, a family emergency, to not tell her because she said, if we're doing this experiment, we like got to dedicate. Yeah, exactly. So Dang. she started back on November 20th of 2021. She went in there with, like, water and food, obviously. She brought a couple of cameras so that she could document the experience. And then, like, some things to help pass time, like books and paint and stuff. Hmm. So she said that in the 500 days she was down there, she spent most of her time exercising, cooking, drawing, and she read a total of 60 books. Dang. Because of the time she spent in isolation, she was completely unaware of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the lifting of the mask mandate in her home country of Spain. She was also aware of Queen Elizabeth's death. Right. Um, Hokey smokes. Will Smith smacking Chris Rock across the face. What about all the, um, no, weren't there a bunch of things in the sky that we shot down? The Chinese balloons, yeah. There's been a lot. There's a lot that's happened since November of 2021. It's all a blur. Yeah, so... She said that she lost track of time after only 65 days. But then after that, uh, time flew by. Interesting. And she said, quote, I didn't want to come out. Me. (laughs) (laughs) So now they're just waiting to, like, do her evaluation so they can study the effects that this would have on a person. I'm really interested to see what they find. Like, so she just came out? Yeah. Recently? Yeah. Uh, so did someone like come like ding ding ding? Or <laughs> I don't know how that worked. Up. I don't know, but what if she had a medical emergency? I, that's a good question. I wonder if she would. If she's so if she dedicated. Had, like, a panic button, or if she's like, well, I'm sure they did. I mean, I think she had people documenting the whole thing. Okay, that makes sense. But yeah, I I don't think I could do that. Have you ever seen that movie, The Descent, Mm-mm. where they go cave diving and there's like those things in the, I don't know. Oh, that what? just, yeah, that movie traumatized me when I was very young, so. What did they find? They were like these humanoids. Ew. Like hills have eyes type Ew, of shit. God. Yeah, they were in the fucking caves. Oh my god. It was, that's a, it's a scary ass movie. <laughs> So that's what I think of when I think of caves. I think of splunking. And how splunking. Splunk. I love that word. <laughs> yeah. And how uh, horrifying that is. That man who mm. went down. Yep. Mm-hmm. God, I can't imagine. That's... Don't do it. 
yeah, no, stay out of the caves. So yeah, that's my morbid tidbit for the day. And for our topic, I want to give a warning. It is going to be involving children. Um, Almost exclusively. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, if that's not something you feel comfortable with, probably you should skip this episode. I'm not going to go into very graphic detail, but the whole episode is going to be regarding crimes against children, so thought I'd give everyone a fair warning. Yeah. But yeah, let's get into it. So by now, everyone has probably heard of Jeffrey Epstein. Who? <laughs> and the charges against him for <clears throat> trafficking minors on his private island. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there was a case here in Michigan that took place decades earlier and didn't get nearly the same amount of press attention. And it may also be connected to an unsolved string of child murders. Francis Sheldon was a millionaire from Ann Arbor, Michigan, who grew up in an affluent family with connections to a lot of powerful people. In 1960, he outbid the state of Michigan by over $16,000 for ownership of North Fox Island, which feels a little excessive. Just a little bit. So, North Fox Island is a small island about 15 miles off the coast of Michigan's Leelanau Peninsula, consisting of 820 acres of forest. Originally, he told friends that he planned on adding vacation homes to the property, but as soon as Frank Sheldon had sealed the deal of purchasing the island, the first thing he did was build a 3,000-foot-long airstrip. Frank was a former Michigan Air National Guard airman, and he owned a private plane. He had a squeaky clean reputation as a businessman and philanthropist Mm -hmm. with an education out of Yale. He claimed that he held the island just as an investment and would occasionally use, use it for business entertainment because he gets a tax break by having it. In 1974, he connected with his friend Gerald Richards out of the hope that something else could be done with the property, something that he probably had been planning on from the time he purchased it. Gerald Richards was a gym teacher out of St. Joe's Catholic School in Port Huron, Michigan. He was a husband and a new father, which is fucking terrifying to think about. It really is. It's... (sighs) horrifying and just a elementary school gym Mm -hmm. teacher god can't gerald was also a self-proclaimed magician and a photographer who actually learned photography from taking mug shots at the police station where his dad worked as an adult he had once run for county commissioner and had even worked at an adult bookstore a business that he would continue to pursue in secret. He had learned a lot in the world of pornography, including building relationships with clientele, and it was clear that there was a demand. But Gerald had an interest in something illegal and more sinister, pornography involving children. It wasn't just the demand he seemed to acknowledge in this business that motivated him to pursue it, But Gerald himself was a predator, 
and had previously assaulted a 12-year-old neighbor. And it was this boy, along with many others, that Gerald would use to produce his pictures and his films. Gerald's clientele mostly came off from a mailing list that he kept incredibly secretive. Not only that, but even before the days of the internet, these predators would find ways to connect with one another. And How insane. It's so crazy. And to think that that stuff's still happening. Right, it's like, it's been a thing. Oh, yeah. Regardless of internet. Internet. Or not. Yeah. An advocacy organization was working to abolish the age of consent laws. God, fucking... <sighs> um... So that would decriminalize adults who have sexual relationships with children. And this group was also campaigning for the release of pedophiles from prison. Man, boy, love. Yeah. It's so fucked up. Yeah. In the 70s and up until the late 90s, the group continuously held regular national meetings. It was called North American Man, Boy, Love Association. And it was through groups like this that Gerald began connecting with men with men who were interested in a business opportunity. Through this, he met a man who was interested in partnering together to make their sick fantasies come true. A man that he had screened for four months. And who happened to own a private and isolated island. Together, they founded Brother Paul's Nature Camp, a charity that provided disadvantaged boys with the chance to experience camping in nature. It was also meant to help with tutoring, counseling, retreats, emergency care for runaways, and they were praised by the community, and they were even funded by government grants and subsidies through the guise that this was a charity. And because of Gerald's position in the school system, he was able to groom his students and supply Frank with his next victims. Sometimes these kids would be taken directly from the Catholic school where Gerald worked and brought to Frank, who would then fly them on his private plane to the isolated North Fox Island. It was only after these boys arrived that they realized there was no camp. Bill Johnson... Mm -hmm a former student of Gerald's, said that his parents were told that his exceptional behavior in school had earned him a trip to the island. And to him, it seemed like an amazing opportunity because he had never left Metro Detroit. So during an interview that he had with Click on Detroit, he said that he was so excited, he felt like a rock star Mm -hmm. flying on a private plane. And that was the first flight that he had ever taken. But within an hour of landing, he was completely nude on the beach. Gerald and Frank would explain to these boys that it's just what men did when camping together. And there are no girls around. There's no girls around. So, right. Another student of Gerald's, a man named Mike Dunsmore, told Click on Detroit that Gerald would have the boys bury him in sand while he was nude. And it seemed as if he was deriving pleasure from the boys doing this and touching him. 
Both Mike and Bill said that they found it incredibly odd that there were also cameras set up all over the island. The boys were kind of allowed to wander around, but um, they were allowed to wander around the island until it came time for what they called picture time, which I'm sure you can imagine what that means. And one day, these two boys, Mike and Bill, they split away from the rest of the group to go on like a little adventure when they suddenly heard the screams of a boy being assaulted by one of their mentors. They said that after that boy rejoined the rest of the group, he never talked again. The attacks on these boys continued until a boy from Port Huron, where Gerald lived, was so badly brutalized that he had to go to the hospital upon his arrival back home. Thinking that he would potentially die. Yeah. So they dropped him off at the hospital. Wow. When police questioned this boy about who had done it to him, he identified his attacker as Gerald Richards and his partner, Frank Sheldon. Another boy had also come forward identifying them both as his attacker. So police began to uncover what exactly was going on, and it was a much larger operation than anyone could have ever imagined. By the time police had finally caught on to what's been happening on North Fox Island, Frank Sheldon had already fled the country on his private plane. The other men connected to the camp also fled, and for some reason it seemed like police were not putting in the effort they should have been towards tracking them down. Like, the case was definitely not being treated as a top priority. No, and they just got Gerald, who was the not-rich man. Exactly. They easily got him and punished him, and I feel like just kind of... They were hoping that that would satisfy everybody that knew about it. So yeah, it it would actually be months before they would even put out arrest warrants for Frank and the rest of the men that were connected to the island. And it wasn't even, like, it wasn't until someone following up on the case. (gasps) Right. It wasn't until then that they would find that the requests to obtain the arrest warrants for these individuals had been completely closed and needed to be reopened. So there wasn't even anyone working on the case at that time. Um, So obviously that gave these men plenty of time to get away. And they did. Not only that, but any incriminating evidence was also long gone, including the client list, which would have literally named out every single person that had, you know, been at this place and doing these things. Right. It makes you wonder, though, like, who was on the client list that needed time to cover up their involvement? And, like, who... Who did it? Yeah. Who made that happen? Right. Who did they pay off or was it one of them involved, you know? Because we're talking like politicians and like like high up people, people that can make shit happen and make shit go away. So um, Gerald Richards is arrested in 1976. So... Like I said before, the client list disappeared when Frank made his exit, but what investigators are able to track down is a list of quote-unquote sponsors, 
because, again, this is all being operated under the disguise of a charity. Right. So, and it's important to note that this list of sponsors includes teachers, university, Boy Scout leaders, elementary school principals, and of course, when they're confronted, these men say they have no idea what they were actually donating to. They say that, like everyone else, they just thought this was a camp for boys. But according to Gerald, who's now in police custody, that's actually not true. These men gave these big charitable donations for permission to gain full access to the island and everything that came along with it. Children. Right. And you're, you're, they're going to get the sponsors who they want, who they know are... Predators. Yes. Right. They've connected with these men over... Decades. I don't fucking know. Well, over just the shared interest of having sex with children. Well, right. And then Gerald, with his job at the adult store, Mm -hmm. like, I can't imagine how many relationships he's built there. Right. And then word of mouth through all these fuckers. Yeah, exactly. Now... Even though there was plenty of proof that this was a sex trafficking scheme and a child pornography ring, Gerald was still out of prison in less than 10 years. Oh my god, that makes me so I know. fucking mad. Frank was long gone and believed to be living in Amsterdam, but he was never brought back to face his crimes, and the other men involved were never located. So the story just kind of faded away into the background, and instead, big headliners were now reporting on something else, a serial killer targeting children. Now, at the same time as the North Fox Island scheme, which really only reached smaller local papers, Mm -hmm. Metro Detroit was more preoccupied with the story of a child who had been murdered earlier in the year. On February 15, 1976, a 12-year-old boy named Mark Stebbins went missing after walking from the American Legion where his mom worked as a bartender to his house. The American Legion was only three blocks from his home, and he had made that walk dozens of times before. About an hour later, Mark's brother made the same walk following the same path back home. But when he arrived, Mark wasn't there. And that's what he told his mom when she called the house to make sure both of them had made it home safely. His mom immediately called 911 to report him missing. Police do a door-to-door search, but they don't find anything. And it's like, it's like the kid disappeared into thin air in the middle of the day. But four days later, his body was found laying on a pile of wood and dirt in the parking lot of a local office building in Southfield. He was wearing the same clothes he was on the day of his disappearance. Mark had been strangled and sexually assaulted with a foreign object. He had lacerations on his head and rope marks were evident on both his wrists and his ankles, indicating that he had been bound during his captivity. And whoever kidnapped him took it upon themselves to make sure that Mark was fed, bathed, cleaned, and then redressed. Which is, like, a really weird thing. 
Yeah, you really don't hear about it often. Yeah. It's like the psychology behind that is very Right. Interesting. Like you've just you're going to kill this person, but you're brutally. Yeah. Brutally assault and kill this child. Yeah. But you've taken the time them. to exactly like that is a very strange Especially for the time. Yeah. Because now it's like, okay. We know that this happens, yeah. Evidence and DNA and right, but at the time, DNA testing wasn't really a thing. Right. So yeah, it's definitely very interesting. Right. So almost right away, detectives get a tip from a local parole officer who suggests that they take a look into a guy named Archibald Sloan. Archibald. Yeah, Archibald. So. He got in trouble back in Pennsylvania for sodomy and was now living in Michigan working as a tow truck driver. So police interview him, but they don't have anything to connect him to the scene. They do, however, take hair samples from his car. And then they book these hairs into evidence while continuing on with their investigation. So at this point, they're unsuccessful tracking down any new leads, so Mark's case goes cold. And in July of that same year, the case on North Fox Island broke, but investigators don't really, they fail to make a connection because... Well, and, you know, the whole different counties. Right, there's so... communication is There's just so sure. much involved, yeah. So, yeah, it wouldn't be until the camp on Fox Island is shut down that they start to notice a trend of child murders on the rise in Detroit. On December 22nd, 1976, following an argument with her mother, 12-year-old Jill Robinson left her home on bike. The following day, her bicycle was found behind a local store, but Jill was still missing. But the day after Christmas, on December 26th, her body was found along I-75 in Troy. She had been shot in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. She was fully clothed and was wearing the backpack she had taken with her when she left. And once an autopsy could be performed on her, it was noted that she had also been fed and bathed, just like Mark had. But their manner of death was different. She also hadn't been sexually assaulted, like Mark. They were also found almost a year apart, so at this point, it doesn't seem that investigators are even thinking that these murders could have been done by the same people. Right. And also, it's the mid-70s. Like, all of that is still unraveling. Right. It's becoming... The trend of serial yeah, killers. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. But then, on January 2nd, just over a week after Jill's body was discovered, another girl, 10-year-old Christine Mahulik went missing. Christine had asked her mom if she could go to the nearby 7-Eleven to purchase a magazine. Her mom allowed her to go as long as she promised to cross the street at the light because it was a busy intersection. She promises she will, but when she hadn't returned home in 30 minutes, her mom started to wonder where she was. She allows a little more time to go on, and then a little more, but by hour three, she's panicking. So, she calls police to report Christine missing. Police talk to the clerk that was working at the 7-Eleven, 
at the time of Christine's disappearance, and they confirm that she had made it to the store to buy the magazine. They said she left alone, and someone who knew her even said that they spotted her walking back in the direction of her house. So it seems that she had all intentions of making it back home. But something happened before she could get there. It wasn't until 19 days later when her body would be discovered by a mailman on the side of a rural road in Franklin Village. Christine had been smothered to death less than 24 hours earlier, and her body lay in view of a few nearby houses. Her autopsy also revealed that she, just like Jill, hadn't been sexually assaulted but had been fed and bathed before her death as well. So now police are starting to see the pattern. They form a task force with all of the agencies involved. And at this point, the locals are terrified that there's a serial killer among them. And there's a tip line set up. So everyone, you know, being eager to help starts calling in and reporting anything that they think is suspicious but there's really just one tip in particular that stands out among the rest. Mm-hmm. A man named Greg Green, who was a pedophile <clears throat> that had been arrested in Flint. Greg said that he never worked alone. And in fact, he had a partner who he said was responsible for killing the first victim, Mark Steppens. His partner's name was Chris Bush. And when police arrive to Chris's house, they find a suitcase full of magazine cutouts that show children on them. They also find uh, film reels with child pornography on them. They find some rope and shotguns that they suspected might have been used in these murder cases. And when Chris is questioned, he admits that he is a pedophile and that he's even picked up victims around the areas where these children went missing. He admitted to working with Greg Green and said that the two of them spent their time planning the perfect crime. But he says that he and Greg are not responsible. So police ask him and Greg Green to take a polygraph test. Now, like we were saying earlier. It's the 70s. This was back in a time when DNA testing was not happening, so there was a lot more trust in polygraph tests than there is now. But they didn't know the extent of the polygraph and what, you know, how effective it is. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, obviously now they're not even admissible in court. Right. But both Chris and Greg agreed to the polygraph test, and according to the administer of the tests, they both surprisingly pass. So Chris Bush and Greg Green are marked off from the suspect list. Easy peasy. Right. We're done. They're not it. Well, they are, however, arrested for their other crimes against children. Greg is unable to post bail and is eventually sentenced to life in prison. But Chris, because he came from a wealthy family, I think his dad was like the executive of GM. GM is like a huge deal here in Michigan. Yeah, especially back then. Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, uh, because of that, was able to post bail. And somehow, even though he and Greg were charged with 
the same thing. Chris only gets parole and has to pay a fine. Yeah, crazy how that works, right? It's always... That makes me so mad. All you need is money and you won't get punished as severely. Like, literally, yeah. Literally. Yeah. It's Especially up. when it comes to shit like this. Yeah. Like, I don't give a fuck how much money you have. Your ass is in jail rotting. Yeah. It's, yeah, the justice system. It's fucked up. And I cannot imagine being a lawyer defending a piece of, of shit, shit like, like that. Yeah. Like, how do uh, you... Well, imagine being a victim knowing that he's not going to see the inside of a jail cell. Right. That's fucked. Or the mother the of The parent a, of right? a child that had to go through that. Yeah, and just because... He comes from wealthy ass family. Yeah. He's fucking set to go. Right. It's all fine and dandy. <sighs> oh my god. I know. So a week after Chris gets paroled, another child in the area goes missing. Wow. Surprise, surprise. I couldn't call that. On the evening of March 16th, 1977, 11-year-old Timothy King left his home in Birmingham to go to a pharmacy to buy some candy. He took his skateboard and they know that he did make it to the store. Uh, he bought his candy and left out a back door, but then was never seen again. So after he failed to return home that night, his parents reported him missing and an intensive search covering all of Metro Detroit was conducted. At this point, they all knew like the clock was ticking and they had to act quickly because these children were disappearing and then winding Being up dead dead on the side of the road exactly but even after this huge search they couldn't find him anywhere they did however get a tip a witness who saw tim before his disappearance told police that he had seen the boy talking to a man outside of the pharmacy they described this man as having sideburns and said he was driving a blue gremlin car. Through the media, the parents hoped to get a message to Tim wherever he was. They told him that once he got home, they would celebrate by having his favorite meal of Kentucky Fried Chicken. His family begged whoever had him to let him come home. On March 22nd, police announced that as part of the investigation, and the attempt to locate Tim, they were going to be stopping cars in Oakland County and the neighboring Wayne County. But just hours before that was scheduled to begin, at around 10.30 that night, Tim's body is discovered in Wayne County. Two teenagers found him in a shallow ditch alongside a road in Livonia. God. Just like Mark, he had been sexually assaulted with a foreign object, his autopsy revealed that he had been suffocated about six hours prior to his discovery. He was also cleaned and groomed prior to being killed. His clothes were freshly washed. And it seemed like whoever had done this to him had been watching the news. Because shortly before his death, Tim had been fed his favorite meal, fried chicken. That's so fun. You know they were watching the news, too, because they dropped his body off on the day that they knew 
police were going to start going around searching vehicles. It's it's just fucking evil. Yeah. Um so one detective theorized that maybe the killer would bathe them, like most likely to wash away any DNA evidence, mm-hmm. but tell them that they were getting cleaned up to go home, God. which is such a oh fucking cruel thing. Ugh. Yeah, like, here's your favorite meal. We'll get you cleaned up and get you home. Yeah. Just so they, like, cooperate. Oh, my God. <sighs> and he said that he, whoever was doing this, probably strangled or smothered them to death after they got out of the bath They were all similar in that case except for Jill, but this same detective wonders if maybe she was strangled or smothered like the other children, but upon, like, Uh, moving her body, because after somebody is strangled or smothered, their lungs can sometimes hold on to air. Right. So maybe when the killer was moving her body, some air was forced out and it scared him into thinking that she was still alive, so he shot her on scene. Right. Because it was clear that she was shot right then and there. Um, which is really strange, though, because where she was found is on the side of a very busy highway. So the fact that nobody saw anything or heard anything is beyond me. But yeah, obviously, like, that's just a theory. They have no evidence to prove that that was the case for Jill, and they had no leads. But then something happened, and it would abruptly change the course of the entire investigation. Chris Bush, the man who was paroled earlier after, or just before, Timothy's disappearance. Mm -hmm. In November of 1978, he was found dead in his home, and within 24 hours, his death was ruled a suicide. But it's not very clear how authorities came to that conclusion. Um, Chris was shot in between the eyes. A shotgun was found laying next to him. It would be really hard to shoot yourself, like, and generally, in between the eyes. People do that, they put it in their mouth. Right. And they do or it Or under sitting. their chin. They, yeah. They do it, like, sitting, not laying down. Yeah. Exactly. tucked into bed. Right. That's not how it fucking works. Yeah, so he would have had to have, like, balanced the shotgun between his knees, but was found neatly tucked into his bed sheets. Like, come on. Tell me how this is a suicide. Exactly. explain. Um, Also, no blood spatter. How does that make sense? They would... Why would we expect blood spatter from a... Fucking suicide. Well, even just a gunshot to the head. A shotgun shot to the head. Chris Bush. See, and all of this really reminds me of the Jeffrey Epstein thing. Yes. Because there are people that don't think that he hung himself in jail. Exactly. Because he was going to talk. Yeah. It's, It's uncanny. It really is. And, and the fact terrifying. that I've never, I've lived in Michigan my whole life. I've never heard of this. That's, like, I don't love telling people about it, but, like, since I've known about it, I, 
not everyone, but people like you, I mentioned. <laughs> people like me. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I feel like no one freaking knows. And it's like. I know. It's a, that's a that's a really big fucking deal. That's, it, that's horrible. Yeah. It's. Like, this should be talked about very often. Maybe. I mean, why is it not nearly as known as even just the. Oakland County child killer. I know. Like, hello? It just doesn't make sense. But it's, again, fucking money. Yeah. Buying money talks. Way. Yeah, so he, yeah, he had also only been shot once, but there were four shell casings found around his room. His toxicology report showed that his blood alcohol level was point four one which is outrageous what is the legal limit i don't even fucking know but point four one that could literally kill a person depends on the tolerance you have i would assume point zero eight percent and it was point four one yeah um so yeah not only would it take a lot of skill to be to able to shoot yourself that way. Faced. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Who the fuck investigated this? I don't know. I don't know. A moron. Someone who was paid off. Yeah. Um, not only that, but he had no gun residue on his hands. Because he just, all he had to do was wash his hands. After he fucking shot himself right. in the face. Yeah, that's, well, that that's makes sense. Exactly. So, what is interesting is that in his apartment above his bed was a hand-drawn image pinned to the wall of a boy who very closely resembled Mark Stebbins screaming. And even Mark's family believes that that is a picture of him. That's so fucked. They also found ropes in his closet that could have potentially been used to keep these children captive. 25 days after Chris Bush's apparent apparent suicide, the task force looking into the Oakland County child killer is no longer in operation, even though Chris Bush wasn't really presumed to be a suspect. They just stopped working on it, almost like they just, oh, it's It's, it's fine. Just, unofficially solved just like Close jerry they you know kind of took care of him yeah it's fine close deal so oh. but it doesn't end there back when gerald richards was caught and imprisoned for his role in brother paul's nature camp he gave the police some of his clients who had donated to the fake foundation the fake charity, mm -hmm. to give them access to this pedophile ring. And one of the names on the client list for North Fox Island was Chris Bush. So, this was just another piece to the puzzle. A puzzle that we'll have to continue piecing together next week. For early access to part two and exclusive content, go to patreon.com slash oddities on Elm Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to rate our podcast. 
And remember to always keep it spooky.